Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. This program is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare and Physicians for a National Health Plan, Kentucky. When we're proud to be a community partner with Forward Radio WFMP LP 106.5, that's forwardradio.org. The views and opinions expressed on single payer are those of the speakers and not the station. We're recording this episode January 13th, 2021, as the U.S. House of Representatives are discussing President Trump's second impeachment. Before I forget, I want to um, remind listeners that Dr. Gene Shively will be appearing on uh, KET, the Kentucky Health Program with Dr. Wayne Tuxen. The first showing of that will be February the 2nd or 7th at 1230. Just a a couple quick uh, notes. Uh, One is regarding the high mortality rates for black babies in the Washington Post a couple days ago. uh, It had a story about researchers at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. They looked at almost 2 million records of hospital birth rates between 1992 and 2015 in Florida. And some of the, uh, the results of that research, it said that although black newborns are three times more likely to die as white newborns, when black babies are delivered by black doctors, their mortality rate is cut in half. And uh, also, want to say good riddance uh, next week to Seema Verna. She's the head of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, say goodbye to her Medicaid work requirement uh, waiver policies and restricting access to care as opposed to increasing access to care. And uh, the Commonwealth Fund is a good source of info for healthcare policy. This week, an article published in the Harvard Business Review titled, Employers Can't Fix Healthcare Alone. Listeners can go to commonwealthfund.org. Mike? What do we got? Well, let me just begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments or remarks that I might make on this program represent my personal views and do not represent views of either the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. Me the same. Uh, Any of the comments that I make don't represent the University of Louisville Department of Surgery, nor do they represent uh, Taylor Regional Hospital. So our topic for today is addiction, which is a huge problem in an assortment of ways in this country, from health care to law enforcement. And our guest speaker today is uh, Rob Campbell. And let me introduce Rob so the listeners have an idea that he actually knows what he's talking about. Now, Rob is the medical director of the uh, Columbus Springs East, which is a small 72-bed psychiatric hospital in 
Columbus, Ohio. He's the director of the dual diagnosis program. And Rob, you may have to explain that to us because I'm not sure what that means. <clears throat> director of the addiction uh, treatment program and the director of the first responder post-traumatic uh, stress disorder program. Do a lot of directing up there. Yeah. But Rob, we're really appreciated of your, uh, appreciative of your willingness to spend some time with us. And what we've done uh, with our past guest speakers is give them an opportunity initially to make whatever comments they want about the topic. So we're going to give you the floor for as long as you want. And when you're done, the conversation will begin. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, you know, first of all, Mike, uh, dual diagnosis, 70% um, uh, of uh, substance abusers have a, a, a co-occurring mental health problem. Generally, it's either depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or something like that. So if you carry a diagnosis of either with, uh, both mental health and an addiction problem, whether it be alcohol or drugs, that's that's considered dual diagnosis. Well, so most you. of the patients that I treat have, have both disorders. Sometimes they just come in for detoxification, though. All right. Thanks for that clarification. Again, the floor is yours. Okay. So I, I was posed some questions. And um, um, the first was, does Kentucky still lead the country in opioid uh, uh, use and deaths? Uh, no, I, as I was explaining a little bit ago, um, because of the CASPER system, which is our drug monitoring system in, in Kentucky, a pharmacist or a doctor can go online and look and see when and where patients are being, um, uh, where are, they are filling uh, prescriptions for all the um, uh, controlled substances, not just opiates, but amphetamines, uh, benzodiazepines, barbiturates, um, mood stabilizers that happen to be a, a scheduled drug in this country. Um, Kentucky now ranks third, along with Ohio, they have exactly the same rate, which is 30 deaths per 100,000 people. Uh, West Virginia has the highest rate at over 40, death, 40 deaths per 100,000 people and followed, believe it or not, by New Hampshire, which has 35. I think it's because of the small population there in, in New Hampshire that their, their rate is so high. Um, you know, the, the prescription drug monitoring programs, though, uh, in Kentucky are actually one of the best in the, in the country. They were, they were actually um, originally uh, one of the first people at, uh, in the country to, to do this. Uh, it was developed by the College of Pharmacy at the University of, of Kentucky. It's interesting, um, except for New Hampshire, here's what I learned as a surgeon working in Miami uh, during the cocaine wars, because I would have to operate sometimes on DEA agents, ATF agents, and those people shot by Pablo Escobar's guys, okay? And um, the I-75 corridor that runs from Miami all the way up to Detroit is the major trafficking uh, uh, means of uh, by truck, by car, um, uh, that, uh, that gets the drugs north. Well, you know, I-75 runs through Kentucky, it runs through Ohio, and it runs very, very close to West Virginia, okay? The other reason that uh, the, the um, uh, opioid death rate is high in there is Eastern Kentucky used to lead the nation in illegal pain clinics. And until House Bill 1 was passed, um, you know, several years ago, and cracked down on them, uh, um, the problem, uh, the main problem in this state was OxyContin. What happened though was once those OxyContin addicts uh, were um, um, separated from their drug supply, they turned to heroin. And then the heroin became fentanyl. 
so that actually uh, in Kentucky, approximately 30% of overdose deaths are from heroin, but almost 40% of the deaths are from fentanyl. Uh, fentanyl is about 50 to 100 times more potent than, than um, uh, heroin. And so the problem becomes how much do you use if you don't know exactly how much is in the supply? And unfortunately, a lot of people uh, overshoot how much they're supposed to do, and they end up uh, having a respiratory arrest and dying, okay? Um, the reason that uh, the, that the uh, Eastern Kentucky became such a, a hotbed for pain clinics was because of the Eastern Kentucky and Western West Virginia coal miners that would frequent the, there because they had injuries, okay? And so, um, believe it or not now, even hydrocodone, that's, where, that's involved in about 20% of the deaths in Kentucky. And generally, the reason is because it gets mixed with benzodiazepines, which are Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, those, those types of drugs, Valium, okay? Um, Ohio led uh, the United States in, in total overdose deaths in, um, in uh, uh, 2016, um, which meant that virtually 8% um, of virtually all the overdose deaths in, um, in this United States were from, um, uh, uh, were from the state of, um, Ohio had over 3,000 overdose deaths in, in, in that year. Um, the, the overdose deaths from fentanyl now has doubled since just 2014, and it continues to go up. And the highest death rate in Ohio uh, is in the Dayton area. The, um, the, uh, Ohio, the highest rate of uh, overdose deaths as far as per 100,000 still remains in, in Kentucky, uh, uh, Eastern Kentucky, because uh, there were a lot of uh, um, uh, opioid dependent patients there who uh, when they switched from Oxycontin, they switched to, to, uh, to heroin. Um, uh, um, West Virginia, though, going back to West Virginia, every 10 hours, someone dies in the state of West Virginia from an overdose death, okay? And uh, one of the things that I would tell listeners, if you have a family member or a friend, or if you are an opioid addict yourself, get your doctor to write a prescription for naloxone spray, because that is, that is the quickest way to save someone's life from an overdose death. So, I'll stop there and see if you guys have any questions. Okay. I'm going to let Gene's going to take the first shot at you. Okay. Well, one of the things I've always been interested in, uh, and all of us uh, live before and after the joint commission declared that um, pain was a vital sign. It was the fifth vital sign. And I'm sure you remember the day when uh, there were signs up in the ER uh, that pain was a vital sign and are you having pain and uh, and all the nurses uh, were always having to ask patients are you having pain and i'll remember uh, one particular nurse i'd make rounds with every morning and she had asked the patient how much pain are you having and on a scale of one to ten and i remember one guy was eating breakfast bacon and eggs and he seemed to be enjoying it and she asked him how much pain are you having and he said oh it's an eight or nine uh, how much uh, role did the, uh, th this behavior uh, forcing hospitals to emphasize pain affect the opioid addiction? I, I think it's probably increased it. You know, one of the, you know, the, the so-called fifth vital sign that you have to uh, document, nurses have to document, you know, pain is very subjective. 
And uh, it, it's very easy if you're an opioid abuser to, to overrate your pain, uh, if you're even having any pain at all. You know, California actually passed legislation approximately 10 years ago uh, that uh, would call for the sanctioning of doctors that did not address pain issues. And they specified that if patients need opioids, then they should be prescribed opioids. And uh, you know, there's lots of non-opioid pain uh, uh, remedies, uh, and, and they're not tried at all. And many times in a in a in a pharmacy uh, electronic medical records thing, if the um, if the pain is rated at uh, basically six or seven uh, or higher out of ten, it triggers only. Uh, the opioid drop-down box. Okay, you don't have a you don't have a choice to even try to take uh, uh, non-steroidals or uh, gabapentin or something like that. Um, so the the Joint Commission called for an increase in the standards for hospitals to address this. Uh, a lot of doctors were initially a, um, very reluctant to. Uh, uh, prescribe opioids, uh, but then the patients demanded it. And it's just like if you're a, a primary care provider and you're not giving your patient opioids when they believe them, they don't come back. So there's a lot of pressure. And, and it's also, and, and, you know, you guys know this, it's easier to get a patient out of your office to just give them a prescription as they're here than to sit there and argue with them about why opioids are not the greatest thing to use. Um, uh, the um, there is a, a Clarion uh, assessment for different approach to pain management. Clarion is the president of the American, was the Mer president of the American Pain Society. And um, uh, at one time, uh, doctors were really not, physicians were really not held very accountable for their prescribing. Now, now it's different uh, because like in, in the state of Kentucky with the CASPER system, um, uh, the, a DAA officer can do what's called a reverse CASPER and pull up all of the opioid prescriptions that a particular physician writes for. As, instead of searching the patient, they're searching now uh, doctors who are prescribing um, uh, adversely. And with the House Bill 1 that was passed, uh, as you remember, uh, basically doctors were uh, told that if you know of another physician uh, that is uh, misprescribing opioids or any other controlled substances, uh, they need to be reported. Um, let's see. I guess that's it. Did that answer your question, Gene? Yeah, yes, it did. But I, I want to add something to that. I think the opposite has happened too. Uh, I know a lot of physicians, particularly primary care physicians, who have patients uh, that need pain medicine, but they will not prescribe it. They send the patient to a uh, pain specialist, and we have a bunch of patients running around with uh, pain that needs something and the patient uh, can't get it. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about that? I, I, I agree with that totally. You know, uh, I've seen uh, a drastic reduction in the number of uh, pain uh, uh, opioid prescriptions that are written uh, legit for legitimate patients. Uh, and they simply, and, 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 and that leads to my business because they become depressed, they become suicidal uh, and they, they come in uh, to the hospital stating they're suicidal because they're having severe pain. I saw a patient the other day with metastatic breast cancer to virtually every bone in her body and her doctor was withdrawing, was withholding opioids for all of that. He wanted to send her to a pain clinic. Well, she couldn't get in for two or three weeks. And when she did, the pain management doctor just couldn't understand the reluctance of, of a physician 
to ease suffering. I mean, that's what we're here for is to ease suffering. And many times that's not happening. Um, you know, these pro these uh, uh, pain relief algorithms that some place people use are, are extremely problematic because once again, it's subjective. Um, you can tell when you're sitting in front of a patient who's having real pain and who's just saying that they're having pain. And, uh, um, you know, it, that's become a problem. Okay, Rob, let's, uh, I don't know if this is a question that has an, a simple answer, but let me run through it and we'll see what you come up with. Okay. As is basic, who becomes addicted? Young, old, adolescent, black, white, Asian, male, female, rich, poor, middle class. Is there, is, can you put together, um, you know, kind of a, demographic pattern or two or three of them of the kind of individuals, personality types, uh, race, whatever way you want to use it, that are most likely to become addicted for whatever the entry process is? Well, first of all, let's talk about the genetic component of addiction. Approximately 70% of all addicts and alcoholics have another uh, uh, addict in the family within the first two generations. Wow, so if you're genetically predisposed to this, then many times the first time you take a Percocet, they say, whoa, this is what I've been waiting for all my life. Other people with legitimate pain, they take the Percocets or they take oxycodone or, or morphine, they, they get some pain relief, but they don't like the effects. So if you take it the first time and you like the effect, that predisposes you to that. And that's across all uh, uh, races and ethnic groups. Um, what I see uh, frequently is the uh, African-American or Hispanic patient who's addicted to opiates and they can't get them legitimately because they, their, their healthcare is just not available to them. You know, um, many times they're Medicaid patients or have no insurance and they go to a doctor and the doctor won't take Medicaid or certainly won't take anybody without insurance. So they have to seek them on the street. And when that happens, uh, pretty soon they progress from oxycodone to, uh, to uh, morphine or uh, to a uh, heroin and, and uh, fentanyl. Uh, okay. Um, you know, I, and the other thing I've seen uh, across all racial barriers now is the, the increase in uh, use and even and an increase in death rate because of COVID. Uh, uh, patients can't get to their doctors. Uh, you know, oxycodone requires a prescription, a handwritten prescription to take in. You can't call it in. Even if you're doing telemedicine, you may not get the medicine that you need. So you seek it on the street. And uh, many of the so-called Percocets that are pressed uh, for the street use now have fentanyl in them. And fentanyl is, is extraordinarily addictive uh, uh, substance. And so that's really caused uh, 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 quite a bit. Um, the death rate in some areas of the country has gone up by 80 or 90% from opioid overdose deaths due to COVID, okay? Um, it's also going up uh, from overdose deaths from uh, cocaine and methamphetamine. And uh, that's nothing that we didn't really expect, but now patients are using things and that's because many of the methamphetamine and, and cocaine products out there are laced with fentanyl because it has become so um, uh, available, uh, either synthetic or diverted uh, and being put into uh, to tablets, so. Well, another similar sort of question in the same vein, except uh, maybe a little different approach, but what's the entry process? I mean, is it, uh, uh, you know, uh, alcohol, marijuana, uh, pain medications after accident surgery, uh, uh, 
uh, stealing the drugs out of your your aunt's uh, 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 medicine cabinet. I mean, yeah. Well, how, here's the thing. Well, how, you know, how do people get started on this? Uh, you know, which are the maybe the first three or four likely ways that they get going? Sure. Well, I, you know, most of my patients, uh, what no matter what substance they use, if you look at their drug use history, they started using alcohol and marijuana sometimes at the age of 10 or 12. Okay. And they also started smoking tobacco at the same age. It's very rare for me to get an addicted person who does not smoke. And many times that's the very first uh, thing that they get introduced to. Uh, with kids and opioids and, and other con controlled substances, about 60% of uh, opioid addicts got their first opioid or uh, control substance either from a friend or from their parents' medicine cabinet. And so I would urge any parents that happen to be listening, if you've got kids at home, keep your medications locked separately in a different place instead of easy access. It's not uncommon for me to hear a kid say, I, you know, I would go to pay people's houses and I would want to use the bathroom and I would immediately open the medicine cabinet and start looking to see uh, what, what there is. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, even e there are some uh, even non-controlled substances that are highly abused. Wellbutrin or bupropion, which is used for depression, is actually also used for attention deficit disorder, and it has a similar effect uh, as uh, amphetamine. So we have uh, people coming in addicted to Wellbutrin now who are, are crushing their pills and snorting it. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, anything that is mood elevating, and of course, if you have the, pre the genetic predisposition to uh, be addicted, then anything that is mood changing, even over-the-counter Benadryl, may be what starts uh, but once you get mood alteration, you want more mood alteration, and that's the that's the danger uh, in, in people that are that are uh, genetically predisposed. Many people don't like the effect at all, and they don't take it. Uh, if it's uh, if it's alcohol, uh, you know, uh, people. If you go to an AA meeting, you'll hear, you'll hear somebody say, "I knew the time I took my first drink at the age of 13 that this is what I was been what I've been looking for my entire life," and. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, you'd end up doing as a teenager, you end up doing what your friends are doing. And if they're doing drugs, you know, one out of 10 will say, I'm not hanging out with this guy anymore. And nine out of 10 will say, well, you know, I'll try it too. And let's see what happens. And so uh, be cautious about who your, who your kids are running around with. Well, this is the first time I've, I've been made aware of the connection between smoking and a drug addiction. Absolutely. Uh, I've definitely uh, learned something. From yeah. That. Approximately 70 to 80% of kids who smoke in high school will have tried marijuana before they graduate from high school. Now, what about uh, marijuana? That was my next question. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, we didn't used to have hardly any research on it because we, you know, it was considered by the federal government to be illegal. But now it's in, in 29 states plus the plus Washington, D.C., medical marijuana is actually legal. And what that's going to allow is to finally get some randomized controlled double blind studies on its treatment for uh, pain. And 85% of the people that use uh, uh, marijuana, it's generally for chronic pain that's not treated by anything else. And I'll tell you, um, I, personally, I know people who have not had ever 
ever had any pain relief until they start on it. It's got, uh, so it's got, it's a two-edged sword. It's a gateway drug. Uh, but, and, and in fact, many of the people that I know legitimately that use medical marijuana, they don't really like the effect that it gives them, but they like the pain control. Um, and I think what research is going to do when we can do this is, at some point, we're going to figure out the endocannabinoid system to the point that medical marijuana uh, that's prescribed in, in a pill form can be engineered so that it gives the pain relieving and the anxiety relieving and the anti-nausea relieving effects that it has without the high that goes along with it. And then I think it'll be much more acceptable. Now, uh, our, as a physician, how do, you, how do you select those patients? Which patients needs medical marijuana? Well, unfortunately, it's just like with uh, Suboxone. Um, the, the, the training is, is minimal. Uh, most of those people that prescribe it are not board-certified addiction doctors, and um, uh, they are slapping it on people because it's a money-making process. You know, it's, uh, if you come in, the doctor will find a reason to put you on it. Hardly anybody ever walks out of a medical marijuana clinic, and certainly in the state of California, uh, works, walks out without a prescription. Um, and, uh, and they'll, you know, you come in and you're a little anxious and they'll say, oh, patient has generalized anxiety disorder, nothing else has worked, which is may or may not be true. <clears throat> and they get, they get slapped on it. There's about 3 million people in the country now that are on medical marijuana. So um, is, is, uh, uh, is the hard drug addiction issue more of an issue in states that have legalized marijuana because now i we've got a condo out in crested butte colorado and yeah. i've been skiing out there since the 70s yeah and people have been smoking pot in, in crested butte colorado from the 70s yes. i mean i was out there about 10 years ago with my younger children and they said they, they took me off the ski runs and we were going through the woods somewhere and we came to this this cabin, you know, buried in, in you know, in between the trails. And it's just and we, you know, took our skis off and walked inside. And there's a bunch of people all hanging around, you know, just you know, token away. And, yeah. you know, it was on the ski lifts. It was everywhere. And right. And right. I, you know, now it's legal. I don't know what the addiction issue is, but I, so that's my question is, I mean, it's been out there forever, whether it was legal or not. Uh, and I, I, is it any higher now that they've legalized it than it was uh, back in 1985? Yes. The answer is yes. Especially in the teenage and young adult population, the, oh, okay. the rate, the rates for uh, uh, addiction for virtually every other illicit substance or, uh, or opioids, uh, has gone uh, through the roof, especially in young people. Uh, and it's become very common for me to hear people from Colorado who don't use it to say it was the worst decision the legislature ever made to, to legalize this. Not to mention trying to drive in Colorado with people high in front of you. <laughs> uh, I, I have two questions about that. One is, how does using marijuana as a teenager affect their cognitive ability uh, later on in life? And well, yeah, I'll tell you, uh, Gene, the uh, marijuana uh, of all the drugs that, that, that we see is the most lipid soluble and it crosses the blood brain barrier very quickly. And I have seen um, I have seen autopsy photos of, of uh, people that are chronic marijuana smokers. 
and it, there's a sheen of fat basically around the brain that looks almost like if you leave a pizza out overnight and you see the cheese the next day, that's what it looks like. And, uh, and, uh, but it, it's true. Uh, it has been shown that chronic marijuana use will actually affect IQ scores over a period of years. Now, if you're just, if you're just a teenager doing that, uh, it, it doesn't have an immediate effect, but it still does slow down cognitive processing. Okay, another question about, uh, again, back to the basic sort of things here. I've got this under the heading of connections. So if you, it, uh, there are issues like uh, uh, social isolation, suicide, family history, divorce, runaways, uh, abuse, mental, physical, sexual abuse. Uh, where do these, are these connections, uh, I mean, if someone is, got suicidal tendencies or they have a family history. You've already made the, the genetic connection. I appreciate that. But things like divorce, runaways, uh, how much does that play into, you know, the issue of somebody getting started on something and eventually getting getting becoming an addict? I It plays a lot. You know, if there's dysfunction at home from anything, whether it be divorce, uh, abuse of any type or things like that, one, people become isolated. Two, they turn to other support systems, uh, such as friends, uh, in, let's say in high school, who may very well be, you know, using drugs themselves. And once again, any type of escape uh, it, uh, that you can do uh, pharmacologically um, is, is dangerous. You know, uh, a lot of these kids don't have any support uh, whatsoever. Uh, most of the people I treat I mean, it's very rare for me to get a drug addict uh, who has actually gone to college, okay? Many of them are lucky if they've graduated from high school, uh, they've been runaways, they've been in foster homes. But then the other side of the spectrum is, and, and, and this is a, this is a, a sad story, uh, but uh, the reason, of course, this is the worst opioid crisis we've had, but it's not the first opioid crisis that we had. In the 70s, there was an extremely high rate of overdose, heroin overdose deaths in, in, in major cities, and it was in an African-American population. So it wasn't a big crisis then, according to the government. And then when young lawyers and doctors started to drop over dead from opioids, then it became a big problem. I have another question about opioids. I know most of the fentanyl is coming from China through Mexico. Yes. Ken, is it possible that we'll ever get control of the opioid crisis without dealing with the cartels and dealing with the Mexican government and trying to reduce the, uh, the, the cartel importation of opioids into the United States? It's very unlikely. As long as there's a supply, you're going to have people here in the country using it. Um, you know, if, if, if there was an insurrection, if this was Panama or El Salvador and somehow the people were going to threaten our government, we would send troops in. That doesn't happen in Mexico, okay? You've got the Sinaloa cartel, which is the largest uh, uh, heroin cartel in the world. It's the equivalent of the Medellin cartel uh, in, uh, in Colombia during the 1980s cocaine crisis that we had, uh, but nothing's really being done. And the Mexican government, unfortunately, uh, basically I think that they're afraid of them uh, because they these are the most heavily armed people in the world. And they have also the most uh, uh, deep uh, seated roots in the, in the 
country. Um, just I, like Pablo Escobar did in, in, in Colombia, um, the Sinaloas uh, went, uh, basically support the surrounding countryside. So if you're getting your food and your and your rent paid every day by a drug cartel and you live in, in Mexico, you may very well not be one that's going to rat on them at all. Uh, they are extremely ruthless. I, I was involved in, I did my general surgery training in Galveston. So I was used to the, the Mexican cartel there. And then of course, when I went to Miami, I was with the work or uh, had to take care of some of the people involved in the Medellin cartel. You can't get anybody to uh, turn state's evidence or be an informer uh, because of the risk of death. I'd like to get into treatment in a minute, but well, let me ask you one more question about the opioid crisis. Uh, the Sackler family and Purdue Farmer, you got any thoughts about them getting, they, I mean, they basically got off with uh, a tap on the wrist and, and paying a bunch of fines. What's your thoughts about that in terms of holding someone accountable for, for this, a lot of these issues. I think that the big, big pharma that produces a lot of these opioids, you know, they, they went from producing Oxycontin and then some states actually outlawed Oxycontin. So now they're making buprenorphine or Suboxone instead. When buprenorphine first came out, uh, it was supposed to only be a bridge to getting people off of opiates. And uh, the, the window was, uh, let's do this in a two week period. Now you have prescribers, and once again, the great majority of, of buprenorphine or suboxone prescribers are not addictionologists. Uh, they're basically in it for the money. Uh, it only takes a four-hour course online uh, to uh, uh, to uh, get your buprenorphine waiver. Uh, there's a there's a practitioner here in uh, in um, uh, Columbus who's an OB gynecologist, but the 99% of his practice is prescribing methadone. But he's a licensed methadone prescriber. They, they're making it way too easy, okay, to do this. And I think the big the big drug companies that have been involved, they're 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 no more different than the, the tobacco companies, okay, that were engineering tobacco to make it more addictive. Yeah. Well, to listen. Let, let's change the subject and talk a little bit about. about let let me ask one other. Question. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Chief. Yeah, Sorry. The Justice Department has recently. Uh, brought suit against uh, Walmart and their pharmacy for uh, uh, allowing prescriptions to go through that uh, weren't legitimate the way I understand it. Are, uh, do you think that uh, was is a good thing to do? And are there other big pharmacies who are doing the same thing? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, most of the pharmacists that I know wouldn't fill a questionable prescription, at least in this state. But somehow in, uh, in, uh, in Walmart along the way, they were filling thousands of very questionable prescriptions. Now, I don't know necessarily if those were in states without uh, prescription monitoring uh, programs or what, but um, uh, they now and now Walmart has flipped the other way because of what's going on. And um, if you go to their website, they talk about, oh, how they're helping fight the opioid crisis. But they helped create the opioid crisis, too, at the same time. Um, so a lot of people are saying that Walmart is going too far. And a lot of doctors are saying that they're writing legitimate prescriptions for legitimate pain and the patients aren't getting them filled. Um, you know, the Department of Justice and the DEA, DEA were the ones that brought the lawsuit against them, uh, uh, Walmart, uh, and, and the, DEA, uh, the Department of Justice stated that Walmart was unlawfully distributing opioids at the height of an opioid crisis. And, uh, you know, Walmart filled thousands of these prescriptions. Um, 
And the DOJ said that the Walmart was filling prescriptions outside of the normal pharmacy practice. And the other thing is, it got, got Walmart in, pro, uh, in, uh, pro, uh, in trouble, was that they were not reporting suspicious activity to the DEA from practitioners who were prescribing it. So yeah, they're culpable too. I mean, you, you know, it, it all boils down to money, I think. I don't think they were doing this because uh, out of the goodness of their heart. Okay, back to treatment. Um, can you give us an overview of, of what's available in medication, psychotherapy, psychedelics? I, I was listening to a podcast about psychedelics the other day when I was sitting on my, my Airdyne bicycle with, <laughs> pedaling my heart out. Yeah. Anyhow, first line, second line, third line, uh, you know. Well, yeah, you know, how, do you, how do you do this? If, you know, Unfortunately, everybody gets slapped on Suboxone now, um, and even they're, they're even convinced to go on it. And it does, the use of Suboxone has actually decreased uh, the, the death rate from patients uh, in the patients who are only going to take Suboxone and not heroin and fentanyl. But the problem is that only about three, or three to 10% of the addicts that I take care of just use Suboxone. They use other things too. And then if you mix that with, uh, you know, Ativan or Clonopin or another benzodiazepine, then your rate of, of overdose deaths go up. The, the, the whole key to, to treatment of opioids, if you believe in a 12-step type program, uh, is to get some individual therapy, to get group therapy, and to go to meetings basically get a sponsor, work the steps, that sort of thing. Uh, for patients that don't believe in 12-step programs, there are other types of programs, but um, you need to change your friends. You need to change your, 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 your family if, you need, if need be, because I can't tell you how many people that I have taken care of that stay sober for two or three months, and then all of a sudden, they run into an old running buddy on the street who says, hey, let's go smoke some dope, okay? And uh, so, you know, social support. Uh, and, uh, and also the other thing uh, too, Mike, is that um, many, many of these people have co-occurring anxiety, depression, and things like that. And that triggers their drug use. Uh, like I said, about 70% will have a diagnosis that's uh, either anxiety, depression, bipolar, something like that. They need to be adequately treated and they need to be treated simultaneously. Uh, they need to be, have their depression treated and their opioid addiction or any other addiction treated at the same time. Now, how successful does this all work? Well, I can remember uh, three or four years ago, maybe it was a bit longer than that. Uh, the, the commissioner of the health commissioner of the state of Kentucky gave a talk at the Louisville Surgical Society and made the comment that the recidivism rate for treatment for uh, uh, drug addiction in Kentucky was 71%. Oh, absolutely. So, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, what? 71% of the time, it, it, it doesn't work. It just seems to me that you keep treating people, they get, get better for a while, they get back again, and then they keep doing this over and over and over again until they overdose and die. Right. It's a chronic relapsing disease. It's like any other disease. It's like diabetes. You know, uh, you're, re you're not responsible necessarily for the disease, but you're responsible for your own treatment. And uh, yeah, so, and it depends on how far out you fall, how far out you follow them. I would imagine that the 70% that he, he talked about, if you follow them another five years, it was probably 90% that relapsed. It's extraordinarily difficult to treat. Um, 
figures from uh, Narcotics Anonymous say that um, only two or three people out of 30 that they see will stay sober for the rest of their life. Wow. Yeah, it's bad. That's a huge, huge wow. healthcare problem. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And of yeah. course, the the cost, the cost to us, um, because of uh, Medicaid and things like that. You're talking about taxpayers' dollars to treat them each time that they come in, uh, and then send them back out. And many times they're sent back out. They're detoxed, but they're not given a program to work. Okay. And so, um, you know, a lot of these treatment centers they don't even mention. 12-step programs or individual therapy. They get them off of uh, heroin with the Suboxone or they get them off of alcohol with Ativan. Uh, they send them out after one week. Uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people, I, I have one patient that has been to our detox center 36 times, okay? 36 times he's been there to detox from alcohol and he may last a week and then he comes right back in. Well, he yeah. lives with his son who's an alcoholic too, who doesn't want treatment. I mean, that's, you know, it's just like, like they say, if you sit in a barber shop long enough, you're going to eventually get a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, what's the connection between uh, access to care and the, the private for-profit health insurance companies, Medicare and Medicaid, and what happens to the people who don't have insurance at all? So you got four categories there, private yeah. health insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, and the uninsured. Well, before uh, Obamacare came out, the great majority of the patients that I saw had no insurance at all. Now the great majority, I would say probably 80% of the patients that I take care of have Medicaid, okay? Of course, now I work in a hospital that only takes patients with insurance, okay? Uh, and uh, uh, but still, eighty percent of, of my population has Medicaid. Maybe ten percent has Medicare, and ten percent private payers. One of the things with Medicare is, you know, it tends to be an older population. And these are patients many times that do have legitimate chronic pain, and they've become physically dependent, okay, on on their pain medications, and they want to get off, but they don't know how, okay. Um, uh, you might also have someone who's been uh, disabled at a younger age and he's on Medicare because he's on, an, on disability SSI. And, uh, and then the, the private payers tend to be kind of a, at the other end of the spectrum. Those are my doctors and lawyers who are addicted to heroin that want to get off. As you know, this is a program that's sponsored by a group in Kentucky that's promoting single payer Medicare for all. Yes. So let me uh, take you one step further and just suppose either there becomes a public option or there is Medicare for all where everybody in the country is basically covered. H how do you see that affecting the, the, the ability to, to treat and manage uh, all of these folks with uh, drug addiction. Well, one of the things that I like about Medicare patients is simply that the that the insurance company gives me more days to work with them. You know, I, I, I you know we most of our addicts are in and out of the hospital in five days, and that's just not long enough. You might detox them, but you haven't really given them the skills to keep from reusing. Uh, Medicare sometimes will give me two weeks, and so anything that will give me more time with a patient will help. The other thing is it allows you to have a uniform approach. I don't think it's fair to have to have a Medicaid patient out in five days 
and a Medicare patient gets to stay for 14 days because that's that's divergent care. You're 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 basically favoring one population over another. What's uh, what's the ideal time if if you had an insurance company that would pay you uh, indefinitely, and how do you follow these patients to make sure they are staying off the drugs and getting adequate treatment? Well, we have uh, we have several programs, certainly uh, partial hospitalization uh, programs and, and intensive outpatient programs. We try to steer all of our chemical dependency patients to get into something like that so that once they're detoxed, they can go to an outpatient program uh, and, uh, and participate in six hours worth of group therapy five days a week. And there's, we have a, a, a requirement that they get random urine screens so that we know that they're staying uh, clean. Now, if they're on Suboxone, they're allowed to stay on Suboxone. But if they come in on Suboxone and they've got cocaine in there, then they're out of the program. So there needs to be some teeth in any kind of program that you put. And there has to be consequences because if you don't give an addict consequences, they're going to just keep using. Now, if you have alcohol addiction and drug addiction, I mean, I get the impression from what you've said is most of these things are are multifactorial. So you're not just dealing with somebody who is a drug addict, a hard drug addict or an alcoholic. Right. But you, you, you've got multiple combinations of these these different addictive substances going on at the same time. It's very rare for me to have a heroin addict that doesn't drink some. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's. Uh, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it, it can be a lethal combination too, uh, you know, especially the combination of alcohol and cocaine is extraordinarily lethal because the combination of those two drugs causes a metabolite called cocaethylene to uh, develop in the body. Co and, uh, cocaine users and methamphetamine users already have a much higher rate of uh, myocardial infarction, even if you're in your 20s, even without atherosclerosis because they are such powerful vasoconstrictors you basically get a Prinz metals type of reaction and your coronary arteries squeeze down and you become ischemic and you can die. They're also prone to dying uh, from uh, ventricular tachyarrhythmias. Well, if you're mixing your cocaine and your alcohol together, the death rate from that combination is 18 times higher than it is just with pure cocaine. So, you know, you get uh, patients that come in uh, um, uh, that are in their 20s, and this is especially true with African-Americans. They're very, very prone to, uh, to uh, vasospasm from cocaine and alcohol. You get somebody that comes in who's 30 or 35 years old with a fresh myocardial infarction, or he's in, uh, he's in a rapid VTAC or something like that, you better drug screen them for cocaine and alcohol. I read a fascinating article about two weeks ago where they said it was possible to develop a vaccine against uh, fentanyl, cocaine, and heroin. I have never read about that. Is that possible and yeah. is it feasible? It's, you know what, it's kind of an offshoot of the targeted uh, monoclonal antibody therapy that's been going with, with, um, with uh, uh, cancer, uh, you know, like, the old-fashioned chemotherapy is not the same as it used to be, you know, and uh, it's being studied against all of the drugs of abuse. Uh, cocaine has been studied. Now they're studying fentanyl and heroin, uh, and it's basically um, what it does is 
uh, it sequesters um, it sequesters the drug in the bloodstream and prevents it from crossing the blood brain, uh, brain barrier. What that allows for then is if you're taking if you're um, uh, on, on Percocet or something, it's it, the peripheral opioid receptors um, uh, can be acknowledged uh, by the by the drug, but you're not getting the reinforcing craving effects because it's not getting to the reward system in the local locus cerebralis of the brain where the dopamine is released. So go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. So it's difficult uh, with heroin and fentanyl to do this though, because it's so rapidly metabolized into six acetylmorphine and uh, nor, nor fentanyl. Uh, it's going to take probably years of study to do this. And then the other thing is you develop a drug such as this, it's going to be expensive. Not a whole lot of addicts are going to have insurance companies that are going to pay for it. Uh, go, go ahead, Mark. Dr. Campbell, I've got a question. Uh, sure. As far as comparing drug policy and treatment in the United States versus, say, Europe and outcomes and uh, consequences. Yeah. Well, you know, methadone basically came from England and they didn't, and they didn't start using methadone because they were so sympathetic to the addicts. They did it to lower the crime rate because they thought that if they could keep people out of withdrawal at free methadone clinics, then they wouldn't be robbing drug stores and breaking in and, and trying to get money for the heroin. Uh, other countries have actually legalized medical grade heroin. Um, and so, uh, uh, I don't know if that's actually, if they have an actually a higher incidence of opioid addiction there, but I would imagine that it's not. Um, uh, the, the, the policies uh, are, um, are economic in many ways. I had a drug enforcement agent tell me that the reason that the war on cocaine was, no, was not as large as you would expect it to be is that Colombia owed so much money to the United States government in loans, it was the only way they were going to pay them back. So policies do do affect, you know, uh, heroin, you know, is a is a, basically comes from uh, poppy seeds, uh, and so some of those states or some of those countries uh, uh, in the in the Far East that where the poppies come from, Turkey and China and that sort of thing, have kind of cracked down on them on the growing of, of poppies, but that's, you know, it, it just gets switched around because fentanyl is completely synthesized in, like I say, in China, brought through uh, Mexico and up uh, up the I-75 corridor. So uh, Rob, where does suicide fit into the, all this recidivism uh, with uh, various forms of drug treatment? Uh, you know, you wonder whether these people you know, one, one second, third, fourth overdose, you know, is, is that part of this process where they're yeah. basically just ready to throw in the towel and that's when yes. they do it? It's, you know, it's very, very common for me to have the, um, an addict who is an intentional overdose say, I felt hopeless, helpless, and worthless, and life was not worth living. I'm sick of being addicted to drugs. I'm sick of waking up every morning wondering when and where I'm going to either get the money or where I'm going to get my drugs that morning. And so uh, substance abuse is extremely high in, in, uh, in, in the addicts. With alcoholics, over 50% of, uh, of suicides on postmortem will have alcohol in their system. 
I uh, ran into an Uber driver several months ago who told me he was career military and he'd spent his uh, career in Colombia. And I didn't even know about that. I don't think most people. Apparently, we had military in Colombia, which finally led to some control of cocaine there. Should we try to do the same thing in Mexico? Right. That's that's true. I I would be all for it because uh, uh, of all the countries in the world right now, um, not just uh, not just uh, uh, opioids, but methamphetamine. A large supply of methamphetamine comes through. Uh, 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 Mexico. Now, I also had a DEA agent tell me that uh, the Medellin cartel is revved up again, and they have enough cocaine to supply the world once again. So, you know, I think our military presence might be uh, warranted in this particular case. Well, right now we're busy protecting the capital, so I don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do anything. I okay, Rob. We're getting close to the end of the lollipop. Let me uh, throw a few things in here. Uh, uh, just uh, additional addictions, and whether they fit into any of this or not. And then we're going to let you make a final comment, and then we'll 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 be be done here. I mean, there are other addictions. There's eating, gambling, sex, pornography, even work. Um, do these, do any of these other, or, or uh, whether they do or how would any of these other addictions kind of fit in with the two major addictions we've been talking about, which are, or the three major addictions of smoking, uh, uh, hard drug use and alcohol? Yeah, the, the, the bottom line, the commonality with all of those is it goes to the same reward system in your brain. Yeah. Anything that releases dopamine in your locus aurelius in your brain uh, can be addicting. And so it's very, it's very common to hear someone who is a, 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 a cocaine addict, rarely heroin, it always seems to be cocaine, who also has to go to Gamblers Anonymous or has a gambling problem. Yeah. They like that, that revved up high feeling. And it's interesting because you talk to people with gambling problems, it's kind of like Christmas Eve. The, they would rather bet and lose than not bet at all. They would be, it's the anticipation of what you might get, just like Christmas Eve, as opposed to what you end up with. And so it, it doesn't make me clept. In fact, the one of the best treatments for gambling, kleptomania, sex is naltrexone, which is used for alcohol and opioid. Uh, uh, maintenance because it blocks the opioid receptors in your brain so that even if you use it, you don't get any pleasure. Okay. They make a long acting shot called Vivitrol uh, that you can take once a month. Uh, and so once again, you're, you're, you're activating the brain system. And in fact, if you just sit, if you're an addict and you're in treatment and you just sit there and recall or hear someone else talk about drug using it will activate the reward system for about 20 minutes until the dopamine drops down. And so the craving begins. Okay. And so if you hear that right when you, right before you go out to the, uh, to the streets again, you're going to head right back to where you were before and start using whether it's alcohol or drugs. Okay. One of the last questions, and then I'm going to, we're going to let you have an option to make whatever closing remarks you make. Um, put your put your uh, your thinking cap on or your 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 future cap on where we're going to be five ten years from now with these problems well a lot of it depends on the research we're seeing but i don't see the the opioid crisis going anywhere at this time yeah. especially now that 
you know, so many practitioners in this country now are allowed to prescribe buprenorphine. And no one questions if you put someone on buprenorphine and, and uh, um, they go in and the pharmacy question that prescription. If you put them on Percocet, let's say for pain, you might get somebody that rejects the, the prescription for whatever reasons that we've, we've talked about. So we're actually putting more and more people on opioids, but it's just a different opioid than, than there was before. Uh, I've had patients that were heroin addicts who said they actually prefer the effects of buprenorphine over heroin. Um, I don't know uh, what's going to happen. I know that over the next five years, I'm not going to be without a job. <laughs> <laughs> how do we solve that problem we almost everybody who's doing suboxone or primary care physicians or a few OBGYN, and we don't have enough psychiatrists or addictive specialists um, what, what's the future going to be for them i think you need to make the training harder i think you need to also require this um if you're on buprenorphine you need to be followed by a clinic that has social support, like with a therapist or an addiction counselor to, to get help, help you cope with problems and to hopefully help you get off of it. it buprenorphine should not be a long-term drug. It should be used as a bridge between heroin and, and true sobriety. Okay. Well, Rob, this, that's is, just not well, this was great. We're at the end of the lollipop. We want to thank you very much. You are, you are a very informative, a great, great Zoom <laughs> guest. Thank you again. And it's good All to right, Mike. Thanks a lot. Take Thank care, you. man. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Okay. For more information, listeners can go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. Thanks, doctors. All righty. All right, Mike.